You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Good morning. Good to see you today. Um, this last week, I asked a question on social media. Um, what, what one thing above all others do you think makes a great teacher? And I got a lot of responses. Uh, in fact, I even had people that emailed me because they had such a thorough response that they wanted me to make sure I heard. But all kinds of different answers people gave. Um, passion, creativity, enthusiasm, uh, love for the people that you're teaching, knowing and understanding your audience, on and on. Um, and, and in asking this question, um, I already kind of had in my mind thinking about some of the teachers I have had in my life that made an impression on me, made an impact on me. I don't know if any of you have some of those that still stand out. Students, you may have a teacher right now that that's the case. Um, you may actually have one right now that you're praying you can forget one day, and you might look back and think differently about them. But going into my senior year of high school, if you'd told me that I was going to like government class, I would have laughed at you. Um, but government still today, as I look back, is one of the, my favorite classes I ever took, and that was completely because of Mrs. Campbell, my teacher. Um, I'm glad I'm still connected with her today as well. Um, in college, again, if you had told me, Brian, you are going to love philosophy, I would have laughed at you. Um, but I did love philosophy. In fact, I took three classes of it, all because of Dr. David Noggle at Dallas Baptist University. Um, there are teachers that make an impact on us. Um, but I will say to you this morning, the greatest task of a teacher... Uh, the greatest task of any teacher is to pass on not only knowledge of, but love for a subject. You don't just need information shoved in your head. You also need to be inspired as to why does this matter? So you could boil it down to saying the greatest task of a teacher is to educate and inspire but they have knowledge that I don't, I need it, and I not only need it up here, I need to have an understanding and a, 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 a passion, a love for why does this matter? Now, again, I think we could probably start a debate because somebody might say, well, no, I'm going to push back on you and say that I, I'm going to agree, I'm going to say what I think is the greatest task or characteristic or whatever. Again, I think all of them are important for a teacher to have. But let me throw this out to you. Let's, let's say that we all in this room have had the same teacher, Mr. Robinson for history. Now, you guys, you're in his class right now, okay? But all of us, we've had Mr. Robinson, and we love him. He's all of our favorite teacher. And the reason is because he's so creative, he's so passionate, he's so enthusiastic. He'll come to school dressed as a time period that he's teaching on. Uh, when he taught on war, he brought live grenades to class. It was, it was, a, it was a blast. Um, and yeah. Um, it, we love him. But somewhere along the line, we all came to the realization that Mr. Robinson 
actually didn't know anything about history. In fact, he was making it all up. All of it. And so we all have the same information, Mr. Robinson's version of history, but it was wrong. And so you have to ask, what good is that? It's not any good. In fact, it's not only not beneficial for us, it's detrimental. It's dangerous. And here's why. Knowledge without truth is a death sentence. And you might say, now, hey, Brian, death sentence? That's a little, like, morbid. Could you not maybe soften the language a little? No, I can't. Because knowledge without truth is kind of like setting out a bowl of candy for kids, only you've laced the candy with poison. Looks good. Put it in my mouth. Tastes good. 30 seconds later, I'm on the floor, and I'm dead. Knowledge without truth is taking your life savings and building that home that you've always dreamed of and building it on sand. Jesus said something about that, didn't he? It's all going to crumble out from underneath you. The priest in Israel had a few primary duties. They were to act as mediators between the people, settle disputes among them. They were to act as mediators or intercessors, if you will, between the people and God. So they were mediators and they were intercessors, but they were also teachers. They were responsible for instructing people in the ways of God, taking God's people and leading them to know him and and follow him. So the problem that comes about in Malachi's day is that the priest stopped caring about God. They stopped listening to God. They stopped following God. They stopped honoring God. And so they began leading God's people away from him. And as we open up Malachi chapter 2 today, God is about to issue a warning to them. So look with me, if you will, in Malachi chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, he says, And now, O priest... This command is for you. Now, right there, we might have the temptation to go, oh, okay, good, I'm off the hook. Well, remember, last week, we talked about how there is no longer within the church, in the New Testament church, the role or function of priest. Um, And that is because we, as God's people, are now a kingdom of priests. So on the one hand, Malachi is speaking to all of us. On the other hand here, he is speaking to the priests because at this point in time, they were the ones with the primary role and function and responsibility of instructing God's people in following him. And so in some senses, for someone like myself as a pastor who has answered the call and the responsibility of teaching and instructing God's people, some of this is directed at me. So the bottom line is, this is for all of us. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Malachi begins here speaking on behalf of God saying, if you will not listen. 
I will tell you guys that the hardest part of preparing and writing a sermon, the hardest part of what I do in preparing myself to stand up here before you on any given Sunday is taking the time to listen to the Lord. Period. Praying and waiting for the Lord to lead and guide is way more difficult than formulating an idea or trying to creatively express a thought. I could walk in here tomorrow morning into my office, shut the door, and just start writing a sermon. I could. It's way more difficult to take the time to listen for the Lord to lead and guide as to, here's what I want my people to hear. Chad and Chip and I, we go into each other's offices all the time, talking about thoughts. This is where I'm going with this. Does this make sense? On and on. I will just tell you 90% of the time that we do that, it's great. And I'm glad that we do it. But where we end up is back in our office on our face saying, Lord, I need you to speak to me. But that's harder. Why is it harder to listen to the Lord? Well, we don't feel productive. But the Lord is saying to his leaders here, if you don't listen to me. He goes on and says, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, take it to heart. The words here in in the original language mean put it into action. If you will not stop and yield and surrender and listen to me, you won't know how I'm directing you. And if you don't know how I'm directing you, you most certainly will not obediently follow after me. If you will not take this to heart, put this to action. Orthodoxy, we've all heard that word. What does that mean? Orthodoxy means right belief. It means believing what is true. Orthodoxy leads to or produces what we'll call orthopraxy right practice, right behavior, right knowledge, right belief leads to or produces right practice, right behavior. The priest stopped believing and therefore stopped acting as they were supposed to be. So they began leading God's people astray. They were abusing their office. And now the Lord is about to lay out the consequences. He's already said, I will take your blessing and I will make it a curse. Well, look with me in verse three. He goes on and says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. You will know that I have sent this command to you that my my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. I'm pretty sure all of you heard what I just read that God said. I am going to take the manure, the dung of the very sacrifices that you bring me, and I'm going to smear it in your faces. I hope that you know the Lord well enough to know that God will not literally take dung and smear it in your face. I find no record of him ever doing that. So this is pretty strong language. So what is God saying here? 
what God is saying, the, the priest would have clearly understood. They would go outside the camp or outside the city to prepare sacrifices. Where they would go out there, where there would be manure and animal skin and all kinds of leftover stuff, this isn't somewhere you'd want to go this afternoon for a picnic. Want to stay miles away from that place. And then they would bring the sacrifices back into the temple and offer them to God. God is indicting the priest and basically saying to them, you are covered in the excrement that you went all the way outside the camp to get rid of. You are unclean. You're walking in the very sin that you're making these sacrifices for. The language that God is using here, it almost references like being sprayed by a skunk. If any of you here have ever been sprayed by a skunk, I don't want to know about it. Like, I don't even want to hear the story. It's one of those things that gives me nightmares thinking about it. Because I've heard of what you got to do if you ever get sprayed by a skunk. The stench is not coming off. And God is saying to the priest, you can't hide this stench. You're going to reap the consequences of dragging my name through the mud. And there's going to be a ripple effect. You'll notice that he says here, I will rebuke your offspring. Is God saying he's going to punish their children for their sin? No. But he's saying your children, your offspring are going to reap the consequences of this sin that you are sowing. That's how severe it is. Your ancestors, those before you, they honored me, they feared, feared me, they respected me, they walked with me, but you are defaming my name. You are forsaking me and I am calling you back. And God says that my covenant with Levi may stand. What's that about? Well, let's talk about Levi for a moment. Levi is one of the 12 brothers, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. These 12 brothers would be the 12 tribes of Israel. But on his deathbed, as Jacob has all of his sons around him, Jacob issues a very, very stern judgment on Levi that he would not inherit any land in the promised land. Here are his words. He says, I will divide them and scatter them in Israel. He's talking about Levi's descendants. You won't get any land. Here's what's interesting. In Malachi here, God has come to the priest, the Levites, and he says, I will take your blessing and I will make it a curse. Well, when Levi is issued this judgment by his father, he is essentially cursed. You're not going to get any land. But God comes later on and says, no, you're not going to have any land. You won't have any inheritance as far as physical, tangible, but I will be your inheritance. God was going to call all of the Levites, that, their descendants, to be the priest. And God says to them, no, you won't have any land, but I will be your inheritance. If you will follow me, if you will seek me, if you will honor me, if you will lead and serve my people, I will be your protector. I will be your provider. And so you understand what God did? 
God essentially took the curse and turned it into a blessing. But now because of the sin of the priest, God has had to come full circle and say, I will take your blessing and I will make it a curse. So fast forward here from Levi and Jacob. The Israelites come out of slavery in Egypt and they're in the wilderness. Moses and Aaron are from the tribe of Levi. They are sons of Levi. And Aaron and his sons are appointed to be the first priest. This is where we get the Levitical priesthood. Now, clarification. Anyone who was a priest would have been a Levite. However, that does not mean that all Levites were priests, okay? But if you were a priest, this also meant that you were a Levite. It all began with Aaron. Aaron set the standard. The calling and the covenant began with him. And now here we are in Malachi, and the Lord says that this covenant and this calling still stand. So look at verse 5 with me. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, respected me. He stood in awe of my name. You're going to hear Malachi in these next couple verses use the words he and him. Is he talking about Levi? Is he talking about Aaron? Is he talking about all the Levites? I would say yes. Yes to all of that. Okay, all of the sons of Levi. And he says, I have given them life and peace. But here's what we have to understand. This life and peace that God has given, these are contingent upon a reverent fear and awe of God. It's not that God has like a lever and he watches us or watches them and says, oh, okay, you fear me? Well, here's some more peace. And then he shuts it back off. No, what God is saying here, he's speaking the truth to them that if you want life and peace and hope and joy, they're all found in my presence. They're all found in resting in me, in fearing me, in walking with me. And when we begin to walk away from him or try to find peace in something other than him, that life and peace will be gone. I've given them life and peace. Well, the priest here in Malachi's day they're no longer walking in reverent fear of the Lord. They're no longer seeking him. They're no longer following him. In fact, the only fear that they had was the fear of the approval of man. So Malachi is about to go on to describe God's standard and plan for those leading and teaching his people. He has said to the priest, here's what you're doing, here's what you're guilty of, but this is my standard. Look at verse 6. He says, true instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Malachi gives some characteristics here that ought to be found in anyone instructing God's people. He begins with this, true instruction should be in his mouth. True instruction was in his mouth. This means that when someone is teaching, preaching, teaching God's people, we don't alter the message because maybe it isn't what somebody wants to hear. 
Paul warned Timothy that that was not only taking place in Ephesus, but that it was going to continue to take place and it was actually going to escalate. Look in 2 Timothy with me for a moment. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I charge you, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll go after and they'll go find people who tell them what it is that they want to hear and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We don't preach or teach to please people. We don't preach what everybody wants to hear. We don't preach to draw crowds or masses. We preach because there is a fire within us that says, this must come out. If you look in Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 20, this is probably one of the most descriptive verses, in my opinion, in the word of God about preaching. In Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Jeremiah says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, if you're to tell me, Jeremiah, don't talk any more about God, don't proclaim who he is or what he's done, if you tell me that, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I can't do it. People ask me at times, hey, Brian, if, if you weren't a pastor, what would you do? And I guess I'd probably make stuff up sometimes. Because if I'm being really honest with you, the real answer is I have no idea. I, I don't know because I never think about doing anything else because there's nothing I want to do other than preach the word of God and shepherd his people. That's it. And I will say to you, when there's no more fire, there should be no more preaching. It should be done. That's why we preach. But now, what do we preach? What we preach and stand on is the whole counsel of the infallible, inerrant word of God, which is the whole gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what we preach. What we preach is the truth. And, and we have to be seeking, yearning for, knowing, teaching, articulating, communicating the truth. As, as one of your pastors and teachers, um, I can have all the passion, enthusiasm, creativity in the world. But if it's void of the truth, I might as well be Jim Jones serving up the Kool-Aid laced in cyanide. Because I'm giving you something to build your life on that's going to sink right out from underneath you. The truth is important. But see, Paul, when he said what he did to Timothy, he wasn't saying, hey, Timothy, lost people out there aren't going to want to hear the gospel. No, no, if you read through the New Testament, 
there will always be those who are lost, yearning and desperate to hear the good news of the gospel. Paul's talking about people inside the church that are going to stop wanting to hear the truth. Just tell me what I want to hear. Why does that happen? How do we get to that place? Here's how. Here's why. A lot of us want to be free, but we want to be free from some other venue than the truth. Here's what I mean. A a lot of people, maybe you're in a spot in their marriage where, Lord, I want you to fix this. But when the truth's laid out on the table that oh, maybe there are some things I've got to work on as well. I don't so much want to hear that. Because a lot of times we want our marriage to be fixed and we want it to be fixed by the other person figuring out what it is they need to fix. People will come in here that we counsel at times and and they will be in a spot in their life where it's like everything seems to be going wrong. And the Lord will give us some really clear, objective counsel and advice to say, yeah, I I understand that you seem to be running out of of money every month, but I also understand that you have a smartphone and you have all these other things that maybe you don't necessarily need. And they walk out of the office and say, kiss off. Why? Because we want freedom and we want liberation, but don't you dare tell me the truth. The truth's hard sometimes. The truth is painful. But friends, if you want to spend all day trying to come up with a scenario of where you're going to benefit in your life from trying to build, advance, grow on anything other than the truth, I'll give you the whole day to think of it. You won't. Knowledge without truth is a death sentence. It's a big lie. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. Malachi goes on and just says that he walked in peace and uprightness. You don't just teach the truth, you have to walk in it and live it. This is the word integrity. And I, I appreciate that Malachi says here, God is saying, peace and uprightness. Because I think that there are times that I could get up here with you guys any any given week and I can appear to be upright. I can have the appearance of integrity. But if that's all there is, you know what I will not have in my life? Peace. You and I lay our head down on the pillow at night and we rest well when we know that the life everybody thinks that we're living is the life that we're living. And those of us who are called to lead, those of us who are called to reflect the gospel, that's us, are to walk in peace and uprightness. He goes on and he says in verse six, they turned many from iniquity. Do you get what this is saying? That because of our lives, people ought to literally be turning from their sin. People's lives were changed as a result. 
In, in this context, what Malachi is saying is that life transformation takes place when God's word is rightly proclaimed. When the truth of who God is and what he's done is proclaimed. Um, and when people hear not only the word of God, but they see it being lived out in the lives of God's people. This is the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to draw those hearts and draw those lives in. Verse 7, he says, The lips of a priest should guard knowledge. This one is really interesting to me. Because when you and I hear the word guard, if you hear the word guard, what do you think about? You think about shielding or protecting. If you're a guard on a football team, your responsibility, protect the quarterback. If you're guarding something, you're trying to shield other things from it. But here's what's interesting about this. The way that we guard knowledge, do you know how you guard knowledge? By passing it on. We have to pass it on. If, if I learn something that's not only true, but I know that that truth benefits other people, I don't go, well, I better keep this a secret. No, I share it with the people that it will benefit. Think about the parable of the talents for a moment. Jesus told this story. There were these three men, three servants. Their master was leaving. He called them in. He gave them all money. He gave this guy five talents, this guy two talents, this guy one talent, and he leaves town. He comes back and he calls them all in. The guy with five talents, what did he do? He took it out and he invested it. He came back with 10 talents. The master says, well done. Two talent guy, what about you? Two talent guy went out and invested it, doubled the master's money. He comes with four talents. Two talent guy, way to go. Where's one talent guy? Oh, he's down on the floor. Get up, buddy. What, what, what happened with you, one talent guy? Well, I was scared of you because you're really like hard. And I, I didn't know what you would do. Uh, so I went and buried your money. I just went and dug it up. Here it is. And do you remember what the master did? He said, hey, one talent guy, leave the talent there and get out of my kingdom. Why is this? It's because the, the word of God, the truth of God is absolutely for our ingesting, but it's also for our investing. God has not given any of us the truth of who he is and what he's done that we might keep it to ourselves and dig a hole and bury it, but that we might invest it in the lives of others, that we would pass it on. The, they guard knowledge with what? Their lips. We have to speak the truth of the gospel. The irony the very sad irony here in Malachi is that the, the very ones tasked with instructing on behalf of the Lord are the ones being rebuked. They were called to lead God's people, to honor him, to serve in his temple, and instead they're polluting all of it. Look at verse 8. 
He says, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Within these two verses, there are four rebukes. You've turned aside from following me. You've turned aside from the way. You've led others in doing the same thing. You've caused others to stumble. You have corrupted the covenant. And then he ends by saying, and you've shown partiality in your instruction. Does this mean that they've gone out and they've just only taught who they want to? No, no, no. The partiality is, is that they've come to God and they've said, you know, I like what God says here. I'll go, I'm okay with that. Uh, Not with this. I'll just stick this over here and leave it. I don't really think it's necessary to go into some exhaustive description of of these rebukes and what God's saying here. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? You've stopped following me. You've led others to stop following me. You've taken the covenant I made and you've thrown it out and you've just decided for yourself, this is how I'll, I'll live. God's straightforward here, which shouldn't be a surprise to us because God's been pretty straightforward all along. Look with me for a moment in Deuteronomy 28. We're about done. Persevere. Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. Look at what God is saying through Moses to his people. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that's not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. If you're not careful to follow him, to revere him, to seek him, and if you haven't heard the new covenant, you can read that and just go, oh my gosh, God is, man, he's, he's mean and hard. Well, turn the page. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 16, he says to them, but if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. God has been straightforward all along. But see, here we sit on this side of the cross in the resurrection. And we understand that now God is not waiting, he never has been, to pounce on us, to levy judgment upon us, but is saying to us, as my people, walk with me. And knowing that we could never do it on our own, God has now sent his son to live and to die and to rise again that we find that hope in him. And now we live and we follow him 
out of gratitude over how could God have this level of grace and mercy and love toward me. And so God is saying to you and to me, will you listen? Will you take heart? And so the question for you and I today is, will we listen? Will we take heart? Will I walk with the Lord and lead others to do the same? Or will I walk away from him? Will I walk with the Lord? Or will I walk away from him? The Lord is saying to us, listen to me. Take heart. Heed my words. Yield to my spirit. I've given you my word to guide you. I've given you my spirit to fill you and lead you. Oh, that you would seek after me, that you would pursue me, that you would hunger and thirst for truth and righteousness, and that you would know that you can't separate the two. That you would not turn aside from me, but that you would walk in holiness, that you would stand in awe of who I am and what I've done. Christmas is such a great opportunity to listen and to take heart that God is with us. God is with us. And I believe he's saying to us, I want to show you what I will do if your lives are spent on behalf of my kingdom. Test me, I'll show you. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we say to you that we desire to walk in peace and uprightness. Lord, that our lives would bring honor to you. Lord, we pray today that you would give us not only the ears, but the hearts to hear you, to follow after you, Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any place in our life where there is unbelief, Lord, if there's any corner or dark place in our life, God, where there is unconfessed sin, please bring us today to a place of repentance. Lord, as Paul declares in Romans, we desire to walk in newness of life that you have given us. Lord, in this moment, we just ask you to speak to our hearts.
If you're here today and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, um, in just a couple minutes here, we're going to respond to the Lord in song. And when we do this, I just want to encourage you, some of our our elders, our pastors, leaders are going to be in the back at the tables. They would love to share the good news of the gospel, that there is hope in Jesus Christ. We're praying for you today that you will leave here with your life eternally changed because of who he is and what he's done. For those of us who are sons and daughters of God, I want to encourage you in these next moments as we sing to the Lord that however the Spirit leads you, whatever He may be laying on your heart, however He may be directing you, that your response to Him would be, Yes, Lord. Whatever you ask me, I'll do. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Lord Jesus, again, we proclaim that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Be honored and glorified in this place as we worship you. stand together and sing about what he's done for us. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.